Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Ah, what a great time of worship. Amen? Amen. Welcome, Emmanuel Faith. So glad you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, we are glad that you're here too. This is week three of a series that we're calling This Is Us. And over the course of seven weeks, we're trying to answer the question, why do we exist as a church? What's our, our purpose here in this little corner of the globe? And what is Jesus inviting us to do? In the first week, we said that we are a mission, that we're sent in the same way that the Father sent his Son, to live in his way with his heart, is how we summarized it. Last week, we said that we're a hospital, that Jesus has called us here to bring hope and to bring healing and to bring renewal. And we said that one of the ways we do that is by becoming inviters, inviting others to join us for meals and for worship together. And today we're diving into the idea that we are a temple. In the 8th century BC, Homer penned his now famous epic poem entitled The Iliad, and then it was followed up by the Odyssey. And anybody read those in high school? Okay, good. I hope this isn't triggering for anyone, right? Uh, the, the Odyssey, though, is about uh, Odysseus's journey home after the Trojan War. And my guess is that you remember the poignant scene in the poem where Odysseus is traveling right by the island of the Sirens. These women who sing and who beckon nearby travelers to uh, crash their boats on the rocky shore of this island because they're being drawn by the voices. You may remember that Odysseus has all of his men plug their ears with beeswax and he then has them tie him to the mast of the boat so that he can travel by listening to the music but not be being taken by its allure. Uh, this isn't an actual picture. Uh, this is an artist rendering, um, just in case you were wondering. Uh, we often think of, of singing as worship, but I'd like to suggest to you that what the sirens were doing was, was calling for worship. They weren't worshiping themselves. They, they were calling for people to give their lives. They were calling to people to follow. They were calling to people to pursue. They were calling people to worship. And I'd suggest to you that every single person in this room has the song of a siren that's singing somewhere in their head or in their heart. Somebody or something that's calling them to give their worship. See, in his now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, author David Foster Wallace wrote this. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Now, now uh, Foster Wallace wasn't exactly what you would call a religious man. If you've read um, Infinite Just or any of his other works, you know that that wasn't his point in writing his novels. But he went on to say in this speech, there's no such thing as not worshiping. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He's right. He's right. But I think it might help us this morning if we defined this word worship. 
Because worship, like we said, is more than singing a song. It's more than coming to church. It's more than living generously. One of the words that's translated worship in our uh, English New Testament is the Greek word proskuneo. And it literally means to bow towards or maybe more literally to kiss towards. It's a bowing in reverential awe and a giving of our affection to something that we deem to be greater than ourselves. That's what it means to worship. And certainly, worship can happen in a church building, but it also happens in a myriad of other ways. Because like Foster Wallace said, we are worshipers. We are people who have our hearts captivated by things. In the past, sometimes this worship happened in um, the sacrificing things to the lowercase g gods. Um, at, At other times, it was paying homage to family members who had gone before. Uh, Sometimes it was recognizing the quote-unquote spirits that were surrounding, and other times it was even a prayer offered in a cathedral. Worship carries a a myriad of, of different forms. And I would suggest to you that today we are just as much worshipers as humanity has been in the past. We're just a little bit more subtle with our worship now. Uh, Sometimes it looks like a painted face at a football game and somebody going crazy, right? Um, I was going to say at a baseball game, but the Padres aren't exactly evoking our worship anymore, are they? (laughs) Too soon? Too soon. I feel like it's too soon. I'm sorry. Um, Or maybe, or maybe our worship is walking through the mall to get that brand new iPhone 13. Praise be to God. Do you know, by the way, what sets the iPhone 13 apart from the iPhone 12? And listen to the marketing. Here's what they've improved on it. The self-facing camera is much improved. Because you know what Apple knows? You love you some you. You want to take pictures of you. And they're like, we're just going to give you that in your pocket. Now you can take pictures of you. But sometimes our our worship may be walking down the street of Wall Street. We invest our money. It may be a deep dive into the political theater of our day. It could be just having brunch or craft coffee or kombucha with with a group of friends. We all worship. Worship is not a religious thing or a Sunday thing, worship is a human thing. And it always has been. Now, if you're tracking with me, you might be asking the question, well, Ryan, why is it that worship has always been a human thing? Every culture that has ever existed has had forms of worship. Why is that? Is that coincidence or is that happenstance? And to you, I'd say, absolutely not. It's not coincidence. It's not happenstance. It's actually design. That God designed us to be worshipers. It's wired into what it means to be human. It's the reason that St. Augustine would write and say, You've made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless. Even though we're worshiping other things, God, it's, it's restless until it finds its rest in you. 
And see, worship is our right response to God's glory, and it's our response to his overtures of love that he has poured out on us. Because worship is God's design for human beings, we always worship, but we don't always worship the right thing. Can I get an amen? And when we worship the wrong thing, it has devastating effects on us because what we worship determines the course of our life. What has the gaze of your heart, what's captivated you, what you're bowing towards, or what has your affection is of no inconsequential thing. It is the most important thing about you. Because what you worship will, in fact, determine the course of your life. And because that's true... When Jesus showed up on the scene, he had a thing or two to say about worship. He was interacting with a a woman at a well. We're going to talk about her in our time today. But here's what he says. I'm going to cut to the sort of the punchline and then we're going to unpack it. Here's what he says. He says, the father is seeking such people to worship him. I don't know why you're here today. I don't know what you came seeking, but what you came hoping for. But I do know this, I know that God is here and he's seeking you. He's seeking worshipers, he's pursuing worshipers, he's chasing after worshipers. And if that's true, if God is looking for worshipers, if that's part of his mission in the world, our purpose ought to be to become the worshipers our Father's seeking. Well, why do we exist? What does it mean to be the church? Well, it must mean, at least in part, that we are to become the worshipers that our Father is seeking. Now, you may wonder, okay, well, why is God seeking worshipers? Does he, does he just want to feel better about himself? Let me answer that question. It's intended to be rhetorical. No. God feels fine about himself. He's God. He's got not, he doesn't have a worry in the world. In fact, he created the world, right? Not, not, no worries whatsoever. Why does God call us to be worshipers? Here's why. Please don't miss this. God is calling us to be worshipers because he loves us and he knows that the best thing we can do is live into his design that he's put inside of us to worship him. And when we worship him, our lives are rightly ordered around him as our God. So what if, what if the church became a temple? And, and by that I mean a place where our, our worship is, is renewed, where our loves are reordered, and where our lives are rebuilt around God himself. That's the kind of person that our Father is seeking. My question is, is that the kind of person that you want to become. Which launches us into our time of study this morning in John chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there with me. And let me just start by setting the context. Uh, We're going to sort of um, parachute into the middle of this story. There's a woman who is at a well in the middle of the day. She's at this ancient well. It's Jacob's well. And the only reason she would be there in the very middle of the day is if she wanted to avoid other people. 
And we're going to find out that's exactly why she's there. She's what you might call somebody who's been outcasted in society. She has secrets in her life that she's ashamed of. And it must have just been easier to go draw water in the middle of the day than it was to endure the whispers underneath the breath of the people that were there or the sideways glances that people gave her because of the kind of life that she lived. And Jesus shows up at this well in the very middle of the day also and listen to their exchange. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, this is verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us this little note, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That's an understatement. A good Jew wouldn't even touch the same water bucket that a Samaritan had touched. To say that there was a dividing wall between Jews and Samaritans is an understatement. But Jesus shows up at that well to extend God's love. The woman shows up at that well to draw water. See, we might say this, that she came seeking water, but Jesus came seeking her. She came seeking water, but Jesus came seeking her. Remember, the Father is looking for whom? Worshippers. (laughs) Like I said, you may have come seeking something from God, but I assure you that God is here seeking you. Verse 13. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, it's clear that Jesus is operating both on a literal and metaphoric level with this water, right? The woman is picking up the literal level that Jesus is operating on and she goes, Oh, you mean I can avoid coming to this well day after day in the heat of the day? Avoid this embarrassment? Where do I get this Evian natural spring water that can be like a cooler in my house? Where where do I get that Jesus? Where do I sign up? And then Jesus is going to start to shift to the metaphor. He's going to talk about the way that her soul is thirsty, not just her mouth and her body, but there's something deep within that her soul is longing for. (laughs) And Jesus starts to identify her thirsts. Listen to what he says, verse 16. Jesus says to her, go and call your husband to come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Exactly. Whatever that baby just said, right? (laughs) Just try to imagine The look on this woman's face when Jesus just reads exactly what's going on in her life. My guess is it looks something like this. (laughs) What? What? How did you know that, Jesus? 
How did you know what's, what's going on in my life? And certainly this woman has lived out what Jeremiah prophesied about the people of Israel. He said, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They, they've turned their back on me. And they've hewed or they've dug out systems for the, cisterns for themselves that are broken and that cannot hold water. It's exactly what's going on in this woman's life. She has these thirsts and she's tried to meet them through different men and different relationships. And every time she dips that bucket down into that well, it ends up coming, it comes up dry. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, just try to imagine the pain in this woman's life. Pain of five divorces of living now with a man who's not your husband. See this, she's had men for her whole life who wanted something from her. But now she encounters Jesus who wants something for her. I will give you living water, he says. Yeah, she's been searching for love in all the wrong places. And Jesus comes, meets her at this well, and digs to the deepest thing within her soul and says, I long to satisfy that place. Now, Jesus was often asked questions as he walked the earth. Some of them were genuine. Some of them were a bit nefarious in nature. You'll have to decide where you think this question lands because this woman some might argue, changes the subject. And here's what she says. She says, um, the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? She's told you everything about your life. I perceive you're a prophet. So now I've got some questions for you. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Most people think she's pointing to Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She goes, oh, she goes, oh, great, great, great. I've got a great theologian right in front of me. I've got this burning question that I've got to have answered. And I've read a number of commentaries, and some people say, you know, she's changing the subject. It's way easier to talk theology than it is to talk about what's going on in your real everyday life. Maybe. Maybe she's more in tune than that, though. I mean, maybe she understands that when Jesus is talking about thirst, he's actually talking about worship. Maybe she's dialed into the reality that the way that she's lived out her love life is actually about worship. It's something deeper that's going on in her soul, a longing that she's bowing at the feet of. Maybe, just maybe, she understands this whole conversation in John chapter 4, all of it has been about worship. It's not a change in subject. It's directly in line with where Jesus has always been heading. And she has this question that has a little bit of history behind it. See, in 722, the Assyrians came in and they plundered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they took a number of the best and the brightest, the warriors, the people of Israel back to Assyria. And then what they did was they sent Assyrians to the northern kingdom to uh, breed with the women there, to infuse it with their religion. 
And so when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, this is centuries in the wake of that. And so Samaritans were half Jew, half Assyrian. They sort of worshipped Yahweh, but they sort of didn't. They were syncretistic at their heart, meaning they were a melting pot of religions, of ethnicities. And so she's going, okay, Jesus, now that I've got you here, where's the right place and what's the right way to worship? Don't you love that we've grown beyond this question in the last 2,000 years? I don't know, as a pastor, I guess I take some solace in the reality that worship wars are as old as humanity. Should we worship a classic service or a modern service? Should we worship with, with an organ or an electric guitar? Should our worship be liturgical, read this prayer, say this prayer, follow this order? Or should it be free flow and let's just see what God wants to do? <laughs> I love it. Right? We still have these same types of questions today, don't we? And listen to the way that Jesus responds to her. He says this, verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Ah, wrong question. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. 23. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, not might, must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus' answer is theologically dense. He gives a, a very theological answer to a theological question, but let me summarize what he's saying. He says to this woman, it's not about where you worship. And it's not about the form that your worship takes. Drums, organs, um, Gerizim, Jerusalem, doesn't matter. It's actually about who you're worshiping and what's going on in your heart and in your soul as you worship. That's what's important. And he summarizes this by saying, we must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, if we're going to become the kind of worshipers that our Father is seeking, which is one of the reasons we exist as a community of faith, we should probably spend some time defining what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Amen? So first, what does it mean to worship in spirit? Uh, for those who would be tracking and just reading through the Gospel of John, this wouldn't be the first time that you would have heard this idea of the Spirit. In fact, all you have to do is go back one chapter to John chapter 3, and you see Jesus having an encounter with a man named Nicodemus, and their conversation revolves greatly around what the Spirit is sent to do. In fact, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, meaning natural birth, your, your body, and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what Jesus says to Nicodemus is it's impossible to live the kind of life God designed you to live with him as your king and you under his submission, obedient to him without the spirit. You can't do it. It's not difficult. It's impossible. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. To be born again is to be born of spirit, according to Jesus. And that's what it means to be spiritually alive. It's a renewal of our nature, a reconnecting with the author of life who designed us. Our sin severed that connection, but Jesus, through the spirit given, reawakens us to life. And it's that same spirit that awakens us to life that also, Jesus says, is our guide in worship. And if the living spirit is our guide in worship, we must follow his lead and respond to his prompting. So to worship in spirit means genuine encounter, not rote religion. Genuine encounter with a living God, meeting with God, not going through the motions of religion. Now, now, now let me briefly talk about what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that it must be defined by an adrenaline rush and a dopamine hit that, re, that, that um, evokes an emotional experience. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm also not saying that it should be stoicism under the guise of being orderly. I think those are two sort of pendulums that we, we've got to avoid. What I'm talking about is meeting with the living God who lives in you as a follower of Jesus. See, see, Jesus would go on to talk about the way that the Spirit works and the things that the Spirit does. And, and I want to read these to you because these are all things that the Spirit wants to do in your life while we worship. He's the helper who's with us forever. He dwells in you and wants to be with you. Did you know that when you come to worship, Jesus wants you to experience and know his presence? He will teach you all things. He will bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. He will bear witness about Jesus to you. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will guide you into truth. He will glorify Jesus by taking what is his and declaring it to you. And then I added one from Romans chapter 5. He will pour out God's love into your heart. All of those things are what it means to worship in spirit. Those things are designed to happen as we meet with the living God. As the Apostle Paul would later write to the church at Corinth, he said that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Did you know that? Let me ask you, did you know that? They didn't know it. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, the living God lives in you. And that's, a, that's an individual thing. But there's also something that happens in our collective gathering that's unique. Paul would write to the church at Ephesus and say, in him, you are also being built together. It's like y'all are being built. Y'all are, are, are a temple that God is constructing, a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. There is a unique way that God moves in our midst as we gather together. It's one of the reasons it's so important to be together, to not forsake meeting together, because something unique happens when there's a bunch of bodies in one place worshiping the one triune living God. So let me just for a moment just talk to our folks who are worshiping 
online. If you're worshiping online for health reasons, because there's things going on in your life that you're nervous about, I just want to say keep worshiping online. But if you're worshiping online because it's more convenient, if you're worshiping online because it's way easier to wear your pajamas to church than it is to get fully dressed, (laughs) if you're worshiping online because it's easier, I want to plead with you, beg with you, join us in the house. There's something unique that happens when followers of Jesus gather together and raise their voice. He is building us into a dwelling together. And you miss out on it when you're on your couch rather than in the house. We are a temple. That's what God wants to do in our lives as we gather together. And so I think one of the questions, and I'm going to fly through these because I'm I'm short on time. um, But one of the questions that you might ask is, Ryan, how do we, what does it really look like to come to worship open to the Spirit of God? First thing I'd say to you is we have to recognize first that worship doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. It happens all the time, 24-7. So you want to be a worshiper in spirit, stay in step with the Spirit. Here's the second thing I'd say. Open yourself up to God. Uh, Paul will write to the church at Thessalonica and he'll say, do not quench the spirit. It's the word picture, quench, is like when you have your hose and you're spraying something and then you bend it and it cuts the water flow off. Paul says you can actually do that to the living God. Cut his flow off into your life. So open yourself up. Uh, The third thing I'd say is come with expectation. If God, if God lives in you, and, and the scriptures say he's creating us together into a dwelling place of God, we should expect that when we gather together, we get to meet with the living God. And then finally, I would say to you that when you do encounter the Spirit, respond. Respond. Like if God stirs up compassion in your heart while you worship for somebody else, respond. Send them a text message. Reach out to them. If God evokes joy in your heart and in your life as you worship, respond. I mean, the revivals that were led by Charles or by John Wesley and by Jonathan Edwards both includes, included people laughing in the spirit. I'm not saying you need to go there, but it's an invitation. Um, If God reveals his love to you, like he says he will in the scriptures, through his spirit, would you affirm your love for him? Respond. Respond. We worship in spirit. But we also, as the scriptures say, and Jesus reminded us, worship in truth. We worship in truth. In our culture, truth has become an elusive idea. A challenge for academics to even define. We say things like, well, you have your truth and I have my truth, which couldn't be further from the truth. You're you're dialed in. I love it. You're right there. Yeah, it couldn't be further from the truth. Because here's the truth. Truth is simply another way of saying that which aligns with reality. Truth is the way things actually are. Philosopher Dallas Willard said, truth is what you run into when you find out you're wrong. (laughs) I think he was right. 
So Jesus calls us to align our worship with reality. And so here's the question, what is reality? And if you just keep reading this conversation, I mean, I I love the way that Jesus says it. This woman says, I know, she doesn't like Jesus's answer to the question. So she's like, yeah, 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 okay, Jesus. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. He'll correct what you got wrong. What you're unable to answer, he'll take it from there. And then Jesus declared, and oh my goodness, you guys, this is like, this is like the mic drop moment for Jesus, right? Like he looks at the Samaritan woman and here's what he says. He says, woman, I, the one speaking to you, am he. You know, and I'm not going to do it, promise, not going to do it, not going to do it. Mic drop Jesus out. The one you're waiting for, I'm him. Later on in John, Jesus would say, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the truth, I am the life. And here's what Jesus is saying in both of these instances. You want to worship what's true? Worship me, Jesus says. That's truth, is adoration of Jesus rather than worship of idols. When we bow at anything other than Jesus, we're bowing at an idol. We're bowing at something that's less true, less real than the God who we were designed to worship. Many have argued that Idolatry is the sin that's underneath every other sin. It's the reason the nation of Israel found itself in exile. And the reason, catch me on this, the reason that idolatry is such a big deal to God is for two reasons. Number one, idolatry robs God of the glory he rightly deserves. He is God alone. No one else deserves your worship. Secondly, secondly, idolatry destroys the life that God designed you to live. It robs God of his glory and it destroys the life that God designed you to live. Or you might say it like this, when our worship gets twisted, our lives get distorted. It's the reason that the psalmist would write about idols and idolatry. He says, those who make them become like them. The the, the, the people that make idols, they become like them eventually. And so do all who trust in them. The one who worships money eventually becomes obsessed with the numbers. The person that worships sex eventually becomes obsessed with attractiveness or prowess. The person that worships power eventually becomes ruthless. The devastating nature of idolatry is it destroys our humanity. But you know what? The the opposite is true also. When we worship the true creator God, We live into his design for us and we flourish. When you worship, and see the opposite of this is true also, is that when you worship idols, you become like them. But when you worship the true God, you become like him. And ironically, ironically, if he created us in his image, when we worship him and become more like him, we also become more like us. We become more human. 
as we worship the God that we were always designed to worship. I love the way that James K.A. Smith put it in his great book, You Are What You Love. He said this, worship works from the top down also, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We're called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. So good. In worship, God is recalibrating, rehabituating, and retraining our hearts. When we worship the lamb that was slain on our behalf, we become more and more who God always designed us to be. Because that is truth. That is truth. And I think heaven is a picture of the way that the world was always intended to be. It's the reason that Jesus teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, we all know that God is worthy of all the praise and all the glory forever and ever. It's also the reason that at memorials we'll often say that the person who died in the Lord is more alive than they were even here on earth. And here's why that is true. They're more alive in heaven than they were on earth because in heaven, their worship is undivided around the triumphant lamb who was slain. They join in the anthem of heaven that says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. They say along with all the creatures and elders to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We are able to be more human in heaven because we are free to worship more fully. So, here's my question. I'm a little worn out. Here's my, here's my question. Why wait till heaven? Let's make heaven's anthem our life's purpose. Right here. And right now, all glory and worship be to the Lamb. Maybe those sirens singing are worthy of crashing our lives upon. A few weeks ago, a week and a half ago, I had this experience with my family. Um, we, we all went to the Need to Breathe concert because um, we like good music. And um, because my wife and I, figure that the season of life where our kids like the same music as us and are willing to go to a concert with us, it's like really small. <laughs> so we were in and we got tickets and it was, if you're wondering, it was amazing. And um, the day after the concert, uh, Pastor Josh Rose, he showed me this picture. And he said, Ryan, I snapped this picture during uh, the Need to Breathe show. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And he goes, that, that's you. And I go, where, where? Oh, right there. That's you. And, and he said, you're the only one standing in your section. 
And I had no idea, you guys. I was just caught up in the beauty of the moment. I was thinking to myself, life doesn't get better than this. I got my family. I got my band. I think life is good. And I'm just standing. I didn't realize I was blocking the view of every person (laughs) in back of me. I didn't realize that I was the guy they all hated. (laughs) And as he showed me that picture, I just started to think, God, I don't want to live like this just at a need to breathe concert. I want to live like this every day of my life. Worshiping the one true God. Giving him my whole life, bowing in adoration at his throne alone, saying, you are my God. I love you. Thank you for dying for me. You are worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor that comes out of my life. You get it all. And I don't care who's standing behind me and I don't care whose view I'm blocking and I don't care what other people around me are thinking. I just want to live for an audience of one and it's all about you, Jesus. That's the kind of life that I want to live. And that's the kind of life that I want to invite you to live as well. We are a temple. And that means we gather collectively to bow at the feet of Jesus and to host the presence of the Spirit. It means that we refuse to go through the motions of rote religion or succumb to idolatry, but we remain spiritually alive and passionately devoted to Jesus. So friends, what if, what if we became the kind of church where we stood and didn't care? What if we pursued the outcasts and the unexpected, the women at the proverbial 21st century well, to worship Jesus? What if we actively fought in our life and in our church against the perils of idolatry? What if we invited others to posture their life around worship of this king? What if we came Sunday and expected that God was going to dwell in our midst and open our eyes and change our hearts? And what if we lived worship every single day of the week? What if? What if? What if? So here's my question. What's Jesus inviting you to do? Uh, It might be to do exactly what this woman does after. I'd encourage you, read the rest of this story. After she has this encounter with Jesus, she goes and tells everybody in the town, you gotta meet this man. See, because worship eventually leads to evangelism, leads to telling people. Did you know that 80% of people who start coming to church do so because of a personal invite from someone like you. 80%. Maybe just one this week, you invite somebody to come with you. Or maybe, just maybe, you say, I'm gonna carve out 10 minutes every day to just bow at his feet. This week, I will. How do you fill in the end of that sentence? Let's pray. Lord, we want to become the kind of worshipers that you are seeking. God, we have no interest in jumping through the hoops of religion. God, we know that you're not calling on us to check a box. You're inviting us to become something different. So Lord, we long to meet with you We want to be people who host your presence, 
who respond to the promptings of your spirit. Forgive us for the ways that we grow cold and complacent. We want more. We want you. Jesus, forgive us for the ways that we bow at other things, that other things catch our heart's attention and we crash our lives on them. Forgive us, Lord. Lead us back to your heart. You are truth. We worship you. And you alone. Would you make us into a temple that you dwell in for our joy and your glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.